Welcome to the Changelog episode 0.5.9. I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Wynn Netherland. This is the Changelog. We cover what's fresh and new and open source. If you found us on iTunes, we're also on the web at thechangelog.com. We're also up on GitHub. Head to github.com slash explore. You'll find some trending reposts, some feature reposts from our blog, as well as the audio podcast you're listening to. If you're on Twitter, follow Changelog Show and me, Adam Stack. And I'm Penguin, P-E-N-G-W-Y-N-N. And this episode is sponsored by GitHub Jobs. Head to thechangelog.com slash jobs to get started. If you'd like to feature your job on this show, select Advertise on the Changelog. When you post your job, we'll take care of the rest. Asana is looking for a software engineer in San Francisco, California. Great perks on this one. In-house yoga, executive life coaching, organic home-cooked meals twice a day, and the kicker, three 30-inch monitors. Actually, they'll let you spend up to 10 k on your own rig, however you think best. Be sure and check this one out. Asana is lg.gd slash aj. Next up is CrowdTap. CrowdTap is looking for a Rails software engineer. They're an exciting NYC startup based in the Union Square area. They're looking for Ruby and Ruby on Rails engineers to join their team. If you're using jQuery, Rails 3, MongoDB, Redis, the, as Wynn says it, the usual suspects, Rescue, RSpec, Cucumber, the list goes on. If you're using any of those fun tools, they want to talk to you. And if you want to work with them, check out lg.gd slash am. Secure Endpoints is looking for software engineers in New York or elsewhere full-time. They develop single sign-on identity management and secure data access solutions, including Network Identity Manager, Kerberos, Microsoft Windows Platform. So they're also looking for folks on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, mobile client development, iOS, and Android. If you're interested, be sure and check the shortcode lg.gd slash ak. Fun episode this week, uh, an excerpt from our live show at Red Dirt Ruby Company. We talked to Nick Caranto from uh, Jim Cutter's uh, now, or Jim Cutter, now Ruby Gems, and the whole backstory of how that project came about and how it morphed into, uh, I guess, Ruby Gems 2.0 and the philosophy behind what goes into a good Ruby Gem, Gem spec, and intro to creating a Ruby Gem if you are new to the process. Uh, you got about a zillion gems out there between all the APIs you work with. I've got several. You've got a couple. Just a couple. It's not as hard as it, you would think, right? I don't think so, no. It's, I think if you're intimidated, it's your own fault. You should just uh, just give it a try. So easy and Adam can do it. <laughs> there you go. Fun episode. Should we get to it? Let's do it. All right. We're joined by Nick Caranto. Yes. From Boston. Yes. Originally? No. <laughs> I'm from Buffalo, New York. <laughs> Known on the interwebs as QRush, Crush, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Either works. Cool. Who was just lamenting the fact that we don't have the uh, high-end Dan Benjamin golden microphones. Uh, <laughs> we should have that for the, the next year's podcast. So wanted to talk a bit about uh, your gem cutter project that turned out to be, I guess, Ruby Gems part deux. Basically. That's one way to put it. <laughs> Talk us through the background of, of Jim Cutter and how, I guess, it progressed without stealing too much thunder from your talk tomorrow. Sure. Um, so Jim Cutter started as a little side project of mine at Boston Ruby Group. Uh, I had just been getting into gems and publishing them. I got in around the GitHub area where you had to like check a box and you hoped it worked. And then it didn't work. And then you checked. And someone even wrote a site that you went to it and you... Looked at it. Anyone remember this? 
It was like, no, mm -hmm. I haven't seen something. So it was pretty terrible. Um, so that was pretty bad. And I actually tried to sign up for a RubyForge account, and I signed up for like a fake gem. And then they said, no. That's like, I basically typed in a bunch of garbage. And they actually had someone going in and saying, oh, yeah, you can publish a gem now. So I thought that was really not good. So I started talking to Josh Nichols, who wrote the Jula gem, who was in Boston mm -hmm. at the time, and Tom Preston Werner about what could we do to make this better. And we just went from there. So basically laid out a few ideas about what the site could look like, what it would provide, and just try to figure it out. For a while it was, come listen to Nick's crazy idea to how to kill RubyForge. And then realized that wasn't the best marketing term <laughs> for it. But I think it's worked out pretty well. Did you have that plan going in to, to, so, to replace RubyForge? Uh, I mean, kind of. The way we were looking at it, it was like, there's no other way. So it was either this other weird gem source kind of hanging out that people would be like, well, do I use Gemcutter or RubyForge or GitHub? Which one do I use? So I think the plan was just to improve what we had because it obviously wasn't ideal. So I think that's besides the prior motivation I just said, which wasn't very nice. We're nice here. So that was really the driving force was to that, that it's going to have to be, and there's no reason for it. There's no reason for it not to be, especially with the guys that run the Ruby Gems project. I feel that you have to really prove that the code you write works. So I had to set out going to that first. Like if I was to go to them and say, oh, here's this idea, they would have been like, no, that's not going to work. So I had to prove it first, and then I went to them. And, that worked. So how did that conversation go about? Did you approach those guys, or they approach you? Or uh, it got to so it got to a point. And Peter Cooper uh, wrote a blog post on Ruby Inside about it. And this is just after I had got it gotten it actually working, and people could actually like download gems from it. And he'd be like, "Oh, here's this new here's this new gem hosting service taking on these other sites." And like that wasn't really the point. We just wanted to fix what what we had. So it was around then where I really started realizing, OK, we need to figure this out. We need to figure out what's going to go forward. So I drafted up a little plan and showed it to them. But I had, before that, I had not really talked to them at all. But luckily, they've been really cool. They've been very nice and open to the ideas we had. And they jumped on it, I wouldn't say immediately, but very quickly. Who here has written and released a gem up on RubyGems? Quite a few folks. The rest of you, why cool. not? <laughs> So for the uninitiated, what is a gem? OK, so a gem is basically uh, a bunch of Ruby code that you can share. That's like the simplest thing. It's a way to share Ruby code. Uh, the actual internals of it, it's actually a tarball that has a, a YAML metadata hunk and then your files. So that's what RubyGems handles sharing that and, and tossing it around your system and making sure it's in the right place. And then it also handles actually requiring all that Ruby code that's in the gem at that time. So there's a lot of magic it kind of has, and that's to make your life a lot easier. So I hate to use the word manifest, but I will. But I guess the gem spec is sort of the manifest yep. of, the, of the package. What, what all goes in that? Yeah, so the gem spec has everything from the name of the package, to the version, to the date, to the files that's in it, to the description, to an email. Uh, if you depend on other gems, if you depend on other software packages, it's a huge 
sprawling list of things that not everyone fills out, <laughs> which is very challenging. Fills out well. You know, an intriguing part about the gem spec is it's actually, you can execute Ruby in it, right? Yes and no. <laughs> Shouldn't, maybe? So the gem spec, I mean, the spec itself is in Ruby, but it gets saved as YAML. Okay. And, I mean, that's eventually what it boils down to. And you can't, I mean, you can put, like, Ruby code in there, but when you're packaging up a gem, it's going to save the YAML. It's not going to save the Ruby. Because, I mean, we can't just arbitrarily execute Ruby code on servers. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't, that doesn't work out too well, as time has shown. Early in my gem publishing days, you know, I would go back and forth of, somebody would fork the project, submit a patch, but they would mess with the gem spec. Yeah. Right? And there was this big hubbub around, do you put the gem spec in Git or do you not? You know, if you want to be able to use Bundler from GitHub, it's required, right? But what is the etiquette, I guess, around the gem spec? Uh, there's so many, so many different ways to do it. I wish... I wish almost Git had a thing that you could say, don't touch these ever. And Aaron even mentioned it in his talk, to not touch build systems. Uh, the way that we tend to do it now is we actually, we actually put the gem spec in uh, the, the rake task, in the rake file. So there's a rake gem package task. I don't know the exact name of it, but rake provides a way to package gems and generate the gem file. And then I'll actually ignore it from Git. So I won't even start it in Git at all. And the actual like version will be inside the Ruby gem somewhere, and all the information I need will be in the rake file. That's the way we're doing it now. I, honest, I, I don't know what the best way to do it is. I think as long as it's in version control, that's good enough. Seems like Bundler has you know, advanced the landscape of gem dependencies, or I guess Ruby library dependencies, to put it another way. Are we still advancing that cause? Is there, are there problems to be solved, or is this uh, the future? As in just managing dependencies, or? Managing dependencies and um, basically versionings of those dependencies and things of that sort. Gym sets, the whole nine yards. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been waiting on fetching source index, right? Does anyone else hate that error message? I hate it too. So there's a lot of problems to be solved there. And actually, the new bundler release, 1.1, uh, is using a new API that we wrote in Gemcutter to make dependency resolution a lot faster. And that's perfect. That's the exact reason why Gemcutter is there. So we can actually, in Ruby, write new APIs that will help out the community and get them out there faster. So hopefully that will be really soon. Uh, we had the endpoints on a while ago, but Bundler is a big project and it's very complicated. It's not easy to, to mess around with it, but that's, it's complicated and it does a lot of things. So this, it, the war is definitely not over by, by any means. Who's driving the roadmap of Gemcutter? Is it totally community-driven or do you have a, a vision for it? I, I guess it's, it's, I wouldn't say there is, there is a roadmap. I, there should be. I should work on that. <laughs> I would say it's, it's more community driven. We do have a lot of features and future, re, and future requests. I try to get them in as soon as, as soon as I can, but if I'm not happy with the code quality, I'm not going to bring it in. Uh, luckily, though, there's, been, though, there's been a lot of contributors, and I want to make it as easy as possible to contribute. I think the big things we need, and this is kind of killing my, something I'm going to talk about, but we need, like, this bigger or overarching things we need that is not really part of Gemcutter, but is part of the RubyGems ecosystem. So things like redundancy and mirroring that these, every other open source community has. Like, we get laughed at because we don't have mirrors for RubyGems. I, I get laughed at. So <laughs> there's these problems we need to fix, and 
It may or may not be within the scope of GemCutter, but the nice thing is that we can actually adapt it a lot faster now. It's not a huge monolithic PHP site that we are kind of worried to touch. So, so I guess the, the takeaway is if you do have mirrors, you have to host them on multiple cloud providers for days like today. Yeah, right? I think I know who to talk to. <laughs> so when you go to create a new gem, to the extent that you do, so your own personal preference of creating that gem spec, are you close to the metal manual, or do you like helper tools? Yeah, I mean, I started using Jeweler, so I tend to default to that. It's gotten a bad rap lately. I, I don't know. There's so many. I know a lot of people that use Ho. I know a lot of people that hand roll stuff. Mm -hmm. I tend to go to, to go to Jeweler by default just because it generates all the junk I usually need, like a spec directory and features. And it starts complaining at you if you don't write tests. So hopefully you're doing that. But I mean, I've hand rolled stuff as well. The, the, I think the problem with hand rolling is I don't even remember what's going on. So. The nice thing is that Jeweler kind of sets that up and then complains at you until you fix it. And it's not like Ho, where Ho will always complain at you if you don't do certain things and follow their way. So, I don't know, I think just use the best tool that you can and whatever you're familiar with. As long as it's not like, as long as it's somehow automated, that's the important thing. Who's leading the charge, I guess, in this area? Because it seems like it's kind of a lot of falling forward and you're just kind of listening to the other alpha geeks when they when they bark at you and do something that probably they figured out a long time ago. Uh, case in point, um, around um, you know, the, the gem spec in the, in the GitHub uh, or in the Git repository uh, and things like that, but also like Ryan's post, I guess several years ago now, around not requiring Ruby gems. It seems like there's yeah. no canonical place to go and say, okay, this is how you do. No, no the Ruby gems doc site is not good. And one of the things that was brought up really recently that's, is that there's no real community place to go like, well, here's how we do things. And like that may not broadly apply, but at least a general set of rules to say like, okay, don't do, like don't require Ruby gems, don't mess with the load path if you don't need to, uh, don't like throw constants in weird places like at the top of your, at the top of files. Like for, I remember at one point when I was doing the gem cutter gem, which is a gem plugin, and the gem plugins get loaded every time you bring in Ruby gems. And I put a URL constant in there, this plain old URL. So anyone that had ever installed that gem had a URL constant defined in their app, always. It's like, I had no idea that was the case. I just put it there. I had no clue. So I think that's a huge community problem. I don't know who's, no one's leading that. So I think there's a, there should be more information on where that is. And that could be a whole separate site, and I'd love to help out with it. Uh, what was the transitional gem uh, cutter command that you had to do before the command line, before the Ruby gem switch over? Uh, migrate. That was fun. So that was uh, so that so that so that command existed. Um, make me think back a little bit. So that command existed in the Ruby when Ruby Forge was still around because we had to somehow figure out that you owned a gem, and the use case I was always thinking of was that okay, I need to make sure someone like DHH isn't going to come to my house and kill me for pushing a new Rails gem or pushing mm -hmm. Rails 3.0 by accident. So, because there's a few things in the gem spec that we can't trust, like the email. So that command actually would like upload a file to your gem's FTP space on RubyForge, which I had no idea existed, and then look for it on the gem cutter side. It was a mess. That's gone now, thank goodness. But it was, it was a weird transition for a little bit. <laughs> So the uh, uh, GitHub is out of the gym building business, right? Yes. Is there any 
uh, I guess, valid reason to have a namespace gem up on Tim Cutter? No. Oh, well, yes and no. <laughs> so, I mean, so, so the namespace gem, so like your GitHub username and then the name of the gem, those are there because GitHub couldn't do it any other way. And there's been a lot of discussion about how to do forked gems. And that's basically what it is if you're forking a gem and you want to publish it. I think now that Bundler is around, which it wasn't when we did the cutover, and that you can specify, a, you can do a dependency on a Git repository, I think that's perfect. You should just use that. You shouldn't waste time pushing a gem when you can just hook it up right there. And you can even specify a rep. So if you're going, if you really want to get nutty with it, you can set a tag in your own repo that isn't going to be in the main repo and that maintainer will never pull it in. And then make sure that you're always locked to that one. So I think that's a lot better than pushing it up, having to wait for it, and then dealing, like you have to maintain that gem instead of just the repo. I would imagine just the, uh, the sheer um, virtue of creating gem cutter, you see a lot more inbound gems than the, the average person. What's the funniest post-install commit message that you've seen in a gem? Um, for instance, the HTTP uh, party, party, you know, party hard. Uh, I'm surprised uh, more people don't abuse that. Because that's like the only thing you can do after gem install is you can actually print the whole message. So I'm surprised people don't like, it's only a string, but I don't know how long that string can get. Right. So. Well, we, uh, Eric crammed quite a bit of into the, I'm not sure if this is new in 1.4, the Twitter gem. It's now actually gives you the mailing list and, and some oh, resources wow. to follow to commit back to the gem, which I thought was a unique way to use it. It seems like the, the humor aspect it was, seems to be the more uh, prevalent use I haven't, case. I haven't seen too crazy. There's definitely been a lot more like silly gems posted because it, you don't have to wait a few days, like the meme generator gem and a few gems that do terrible things that I won't talk about. But there's a few funny, funny gems, not so much funny post installs. But maybe that could be a whole new era of comedy in the Ruby community. I'll throw the same question at you that I threw at Wes. Um, you know, gems and, and the Fog Library are means to an end. What's your end? What are you building? With, with gem cutter? With anything. You're, what, it, Sunday afternoon, if you're just coding, if, if you're lame like me and that's what you do on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Believe me, I'm, I'm that lame as well. <laughs> I'm no different. So. I've been working a lot with Redis lately, and I've given a few talks on it. And I'm in the process of writing a service that uses it, so I've just been knee-deep. Uh, this week I've been doing a lot with uh, Event Machine. I've never used Event Machine before, seriously, for anything. Uh, apparently they do timers really well, which is really hard to write, and they do it really well, so I'm going to let Event Machine do that. So I've been messing around with Redis and Event Machine, trying to wrap my head around it. So. Besides that, not, not too much outside of the gem cutter world. There's definitely always a lot of uh, pull requests and bugs that suck up a lot of time. Thanks for joining us. We need to clear off the stage for Dr. Cool. Nick's keynote. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys.